Okay, and welcome everyone to episode 21 here in the Lindroth Hockey Podcast, brought to you by Black and Gold Sports Network. Uh, Andrew is on his way. He must have uh, running a little bit late for the first time, so we're going to get right into the introduction and our special guest here today. So we're very excited to have our special guest, Jeff Ulner, with us here today. Jeff played for the University of North Dakota. He turned pro in 1999, joining uh, Houston of the IHL. He went on to play on 24 pro teams in 13 countries, 16 different hockey leagues, including the NHL with the New York Rangers. He has many memorable, memorable events, and those include uh, leading the German DHL with an impressive 74 points in 53 games in 2009 and 10 and playing over 1,100 pro games, including playoffs. A true Ironman, he also went on to play over 850 straight games in 16 seasons without an injury or illness. So we'd like to welcome to the show, Jeff Ulner. Jeff, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Boy, what a, uh, what a resume you got, and we're going to hit more of that, but already that's just, wow. <laughs> you stay healthy. <laughs> yeah yeah that's a lot of uh, a lot of teams a lot of track suits collected right there so we'll start here in, in 1999 2000 you played for team canada and played with some great players like jason spezza jamie ram xavier magic what was that experience like for you that was a unique experience that was uh the last year that the canadian national team had a program where we all lived in calgary and we would go um sometimes up to a month without a game. So you'd be, you'd be practicing really intense practices, um, bike rides and, and whatever, whatever else they had for us. But you would, you would go for quite a while without, with a stretch of not having a game and just practicing, working hard. And then you'd all of a sudden get on a plane and you'd be headed to, uh, to Russia or to Japan or to Sweden or, or uh, Czech Republic, places like that. And then you'd go on and play, say, 15 games in, in 20 nights or something. Uh, so it'd be like a whirlwind tour of Europe or uh, in some cases, Asia um, and, and just a bunch of different games against different pro teams. And then along the way, um, just so it happened or as it happened, pardon me, it was um, if you were to play a team that, that really liked one of the players on our team, they would then offer them a contract. So you'd have guys um, basically leaving our team and staying with teams or, or coming back to Calgary, picking up their stuff and then heading back to play on those teams. So. That was a, it was a real unique uh, experience for me, but a, one of my, probably the most fun um, hockey season that I was involved in, just with all of the travel, um, great bunch of guys and getting to see all these different countries, play in the Spengler Cup, playing in the Baltic Cup in Moscow, um, Sweden games in, in, in Stockholm, and like I'd mentioned, being to Japan and all these different places with a, with a great bunch of guys. And, and I got to play for uh, Tom Rennie, who went on to have a, successful career or had had a successful career before that and then and then did so once again after that um, but uh, just a special year and then that kind of um, started off uh, a quite a long career for myself in, in the game. Yeah that was my next question what was your experience working with Tom Ray? Um, well Tom, Tom was the head coach for our, our program so he was uh, he, he led us uh, for all these tournaments and all these games in Europe and then um, it just so happened after that season um, with the Canadian national team, I ended up playing the, the last, uh, I think it was five games of the season with the Houston Arrows in the, in the International Hockey League, the last year they had an IHL, um, and then the playoff run from there and, and impressed my coach, who was Ron Lowe, him and uh, Dave Barr. Uh, and Ron Lowe ended up getting the head job with the New York Rangers the next year and really uh, saw a lot of potential um, in me. And so I signed with the, with the Rangers and ended up playing um, there for about half of the season the next year. And, and they had brought Tom in um, around that time uh, after I had signed with the Rangers, but he, he ended up coming to the Rangers and um, he was there for, for a portion of, of that season. So that was a big thrill for me. And it, it was great to, for Tom to say how proud he was. And, uh, you know, I, I came into that uh, Canadian national team basically as, as somewhat of a walk-on and not assured of a spot. Uh, never really signed a contract to stay the full season. It was just kind of day by day and just the, the mental kind of 
wear and tear that takes on you is, is kind of tough, not knowing if you're staying or if you might, might go the next day. And he just uh, kind of explained how proud he was that, uh, that I had, had, had made it to the NHL the next season after going through something like that. And, and he was just a great guy to learn from. So um, he, he still uh, sends me messages from time to time. And um, whenever I, I send out a resume or, or whatever, I make sure that he's one of the, uh, the references on there because he's such a good, a good man. Absolutely. So, yeah. you, like you said, you jumped in in the playoffs uh, in Houston. So, not a long time in the IHL, but what was the IHL experience like for you? I mean, tough league, tough guys, older guys in some cases. Yeah, it was a it was a whirlwind for me. It was it was the first time that I had ever gone from trying to play a skilled uh, game to actually just you know not knowing. I knew exactly what they, they expected of me, which, which is why I really liked Ron Lowe and Dave Barr as coaches. They just said, you know, go out, work hard, finish every check, um, get to the net. And so I, I took that literally and became a, a different player than I had been in the past with a, with a super clear uh, direction and what was going to get me um, ultimately to the NHL. So um, it, it was, it was a lot of fun for me. There was a lot of older guys. I was, I think 21 or, or so. And, so a really young player, um, but we had Mark Lamb, we had uh, Lane Lambert, we had, um, oh man, so many, so many, Brian Wiseman, just some, some guys that Freddie Shabbat was our goalie. So these guys that were, uh, had played a, a lot of years in the, in the NHL and the IHL and a lot of experience. So coming into a team like that with so much uh, veteran experience was 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 a great way for me to learn kind of what it was like to be a pro. And I think that was a, a big um, step for me in, in actually becoming a good pro myself later on down the road. So you, you bring us to the New York Rangers. So bring us through your experience getting that call up uh, to the NHL and then playing your first game. Yeah, this was a, this was a funny one. So we were, I had, uh, I had a really good camp. I was one of the last cuts um, with the Rangers. I came in there, like I said, with lots of, lots of confidence and, and kind of nothing to lose and had a couple goals in there in the blue and white game there in the final uh, game before they send, send players out. And either way it worked, I was happy with, with what I did there, but, but ultimately got sent down to Hartford, which, which definitely isn't a, isn't a bad thing. Uh, went down there. Um, I think it was oh January, late January. I remember it. Um, we were at a Super Bowl party with the team. And so you have all the guys over and, you know, whatever goes on at a Super Bowl party, watching the game. And I'm sure there was a few, a uh, few drinks and whatever. And we just decided, you know, let's have wrestling matches. So I remember um, not picking the best guy to have a wrestling match against. It was Chris Kennedy, who was a, who was kind of a tough guy, a real scrappy guy, good right winger. Um, him and I were in a wrestling match and I, I don't remember how it ended up, but I just remember getting on the bus the next day. We had a long trip to Norfolk uh, to play the Admirals. And I want to say it was six, seven hours and my neck was so stiff that I couldn't turn it the one way. Um, and I'm trying to sleep on the bus and uh, get some sleep on, on the way there to, to get some, uh, some rest after the Super Bowl party. And I get called to the front of the bus and John Paddock says, you know, you got called up to the Rangers. You're, uh, you're playing <laughs> against the, you're going to play against the Montreal Canadians tomorrow night in MSG. So once we get to, to Norfolk, you'll fly back and, uh, and then you're going to play tomorrow night. So I was, I was super nervous, super excited. Um, that, that, that was uh, instant, instantly the neck felt a little bit better. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, I, I got to New York and um, got a good sleep and, and played the next day and got to play, uh, start the game with, with Mark Messier and, and Adam Graves and ended up having a, having a strong game and then uh, stayed for most of, uh, most of the rest of the season. So uh, some of the guys that we have on the podcast uh, talk about, you know, and some have, have, have played 20, 30 games in the NHL, some just three or four, but their story is very similar. Uh, they talk about how they, they get to the team for the first time, they get to the locker room, and usually the, the captain, I guess in this case, Messier would have, would have been the captain, that they don't treat you any differently. They, they kind of, the philosophy in the locker room is look, you made it. Doesn't matter if you've been here 20 years or one game uh, you made it welcome. Was that kind of your experience uh, with the Rangers? 
Yeah, one of the one of the coolest things that had ever happened to me in hockey was um, getting getting that call and then coming in in the morning before pregame skate. So I think I stayed right across the street from MSG uh, in the hotel, and then Pennsylvania. It, it's basically it's, pardon me, Pennsylvania. Yeah. I think it's Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I walked across the street with my hockey bag and my sticks, and uh, you take the elevator up. You walk in the in the front doors, and Adam Graves was there, and I had met him in camp, and obviously know of him, and, and didn't expect that he would know my name. Um, but he, as soon as I walked in, hey Jeff, glad to have you, uh, well deserved, whatever he had said, and then he said, here, let me grab your bag, and I said, no, 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 I, I'm going to carry my. He's like, no, I, I insist. So that kind of tells you what what kind of a guy Adam Graves is. Um, wanted to grab my bag and, and carry it up as a veteran veteran player and me playing my first game. So I tried to carry it, but he wouldn't let me. And, uh, and then, you know, as the season went on, I got to, got to know him a little bit better. And we actually um, were roommates a little bit uh, when we, for home games, you stay across the street in a hotel just because of the traffic there in New York. So I got to room a little bit with, with Adam on game days and, and got to know and got to see, just what a pro he was he'd walk across and he knew the the vendors names and the ticket people's names and he'd shake hands and and say hi to everybody on his way into the rink and, and just kind of learn what a true pro he is so that was a that was a big uh lesson for me and something that i tried to take with me along the way in my um later years in in pro hockey also nice andrew you made it Hey, Maybe. Nice to meet you, Jeff. Thanks, thanks right. for joining us on the show. Andrew has the next question. So yep. bring, us through, bring us through your experience getting called up to the NHL. Oh, no, we just, did, just that. did that one. You played wow. in many different leagues in different countries, Jeff. So what leagues were the toughest? And then which leagues were the fastest? Yeah. The fastest? yeah. Um, they all seemed faster at the time, obviously. And then when you get older and you play in the, the slower leagues, they still seem fast. So. But <laughs> In saying that, it was definitely the KHL was was the fastest for me. Um, that's a, a total puck control league, so it's um, it was a case where I you'd mentioned my my one really good year in Germany. I, I had gone uh, from Germany, and I think it was that year where I led that league in scoring, and then went to the KHL, and then it was almost like I couldn't touch the puck. It was so fast, and I went twenty whatever games it was, and had about two goals. Where in, in Germany, I was. Uh, uh, scoring quite a bit. So that, that was a really tough, uh, tough league to, for me to get scoring chances in as a shooter, kind of waiting, hanging around for the puck and waiting for a, waiting for a pass in some cases. Um, also leagues like the, the Swiss league is a very, the ice is bigger. Uh, players are fast. They can really move. They can really skate. That's a, that's a really fast league. And then Sweden and Finland are, are, are two other ones that are similar to the style in the NHL, but really, uh, really fast. And, a lot of puck control and each league has its kind of own uh, nuances uh, and such, but um, those are four of the, of the top leagues for sure. So in the KHL, why do you think it was so tough? Was it just uh, uh, like a Russian system that they're working on over there or is it just tougher players, better players? I, what? I think it, it could have been a case. I wasn't on, I was on the two, my two stints there in the KHL, I was on uh, two of the weaker teams uh, each year. Um, and also going up against guys like, like Yager was in the league then and Radulov and, and these guys, they were on top teams. So it seems like you're chasing them all the time. And um, in that, in that system, most teams systems in the KHL, it's, it's, let's not dump it in. If we don't have anything by the time we get to the blue line, let's circle back. And as you know, the Russian five, uh, how, how they used to play. And so that, that, that kind of gets, um, handed down to these different teams in their system. So it's a lot of puck control and puck possession. Uh, and it just leads to less turnovers basically. And, and that's kind of as a, as a goal scorer, you can kind of capitalize on some turnovers sometimes being in the right place at the right time. But that, uh, that was uh, few and far between there for sure. So from a fan perspective, you know, we hear some NHL players will just say had enough of the NHL and they'll jump onto the KHL, then they're back and forth. Um, and there's kind of some myths that we've heard about that. There's some Russians that don't want to come to the NHL. What, what, what was sort of, I mean, you can't really put all players in one category, but what was the feeling over there? Were there some Russians that said, I don't need to go to the NHL. I'm making enough money here. This is my home. Yeah, there, there's, there's some of the players. Some of the players really like watching the NHL there and they're NHL fans. And then others, you know, the KHL is the NHL for them. So they're, 
they're staying no matter what. But I think nowadays you'd see more Russian players watching NHL highlights and you'd go into the dressing room and they'd have, you know, Chicago Blackhawks hats and a lot of them are Patrick Kane fans or whatever. So it's becoming more popular at, at that time. It was still, uh, this was when I was there, it was 10, you know, 15 years ago or whatever it was now the first year of the KHL. And then, and then another year after that, but, um, yeah, in a lot of cases on the top teams, St. Petersburg, you know, Ska, there's the, the Red Army team, the CSKA and all, all the Moscow teams. Some of that money is is net money. And so they don't pay tax on that. And and it can be a bigger number than they would earn in the in the NHL. So for a lot of them, the opportunity to stay home close to family and earn the same or more than they than they would in the NHL. Why wouldn't they stay? So that's uh, that was kind of my experience there. So what were the fans like, especially like in the KHL and the, uh, the Swiss League? I mean, were they as um, passionate as Canadian, even American fans? Yeah, and in some cases, even more. So um, I, I've told the story before that when I was in Germany, five seasons in Austria, um, what, four seasons, and then the Swiss League twice. Those were some of the most passionate fans. It's almost like a soccer atmosphere with the chanting and the, the towels waving and um, I had the, the opportunity and good fortune to, to win a championship in, um, in the Swiss League, in, in the Swiss B League with Lausanne. And that was amazing to see the, the passion of the fans and there'd be uh, firecracker, like fireworks in the stands and shooting off uh, these things <laughs> that you want. And it, it was just nuts and just constant jumping and the arena shaking and you can't, you can't hear anything because the soccer chants are going throughout the whole play and it's just a totally different animal there with, uh, with the, with the soccer culture and then them bringing over the kind of the fanatics and the, and the super fans, um, in, in those different leagues. So that was, that was a lot of fun. I do miss, uh, miss some of that passion, uh, with the fans and hopefully, um, I mean, you, you see the same thing with the same passion and with the fans over here in North America, but just not to that same extent with the jumping and chanting and the, and the songs and stuff like that. And, but, uh, that being said, I hope we see uh, max capacities again here pretty soon with this, this pandemic. Absolutely. Did your experiences early on playing with Team Canada and, and traveling all over the world, did, did that make you aware of opportunities overseas or was it just something like I was going to go where it's going to go? I, mean, I, I was kind of, I was really fortunate to do that early in my career where I, I kind of uh, wasn't scared to try new things and, and see the different cultures and and that, and when it finally became time for me, I think it was 27 or 26 or 27 when I finally uh, had been over um, for a couple of years. I got traded from New York to Ottawa, played a couple of years in the in the American Hockey League, and didn't uh, didn't earn a call up. And then um, I went over to Finland the next year, and then signed back in the NHL the next year, and um, with uh, with the Avalanche. But that was the year that the uh, lockout wiped out the the NHL season so I played the full season in Hartford so that was um after that point when I'd had a good good season in the AHL and wasn't getting like the the contract offers that that I thought I would get from from having such a strong season um that year where where it was a, a probably the strongest American Hockey League that that there has been for a lot of years with all the NHL players there I just kind of realized that you know what maybe maybe this might be a good, a good time for me to go over coming off a good year. The offers from Europe were good. Um, and then from the, I wasn't really getting the NHL offers that I thought I would. So I, I just thought, Hey, let's, let's do it. We'll go. And then we can always come back or I can always come back just like I had done the previous season. So um, I thought let's do it. And then I ended up playing uh, with 13 more seasons over there. So that was a, that was a good decision for me. So, so a guy who's grinding it out, let's say the, the East Coast Hockey League and the American Hockey League, if, if they don't see that they're, you know, maybe going to make it to the NHL, do you think strictly financially, is it better to go overseas and play or do you get paid better here in America? I mean, I know that that probably plays a part with players in, in that situation. Yeah, I know 100% you get paid. Uh, it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd be a good decision to look at going to the different leagues. It just depends which league um, – you uh you go to there there's different levels of, of salaries in different leagues some of the leagues uh most of the leagues i should say give you uh tax-free euros um with a house uh that's furnished with a car for you to use um and then your insurance is paid um in some in some countries you also have tax uh 
tax money back, even though you don't pay any taxes, you still get a little bit of a percentage back. So it really makes sense uh, for the players that are in the East Coast League and even American League uh, lower deals to look at going over there. And um, that's what I did and got to got to see basically every country over there. So I know all the different uh, ins and outs, but uh, I'm glad I did it at the time I did it um, rather than waiting a few more years. But uh, everyone's different. And for me, jumping around from country to country and, and, and team to team wasn't bad because I didn't have uh, a family at the time. And I was uh, a single guy that could just bounce around and um, loved being over there and learning the different cultures and learned how to speak German and, and could do that uh, comfortably. So I would just kind of go to the next place and enjoy it while I was there. And then basically a mercenary, go to the highest bidder the next year. And bounce yeah. around. Yeah. But, uh, it was a, it was a pretty cool, uh, cool way to, to uh, spend 13 or 14 years over in Europe. And um, yeah, I'd recommend, recommend guys that are, are, are battling it out in East coast league and places like that to definitely try that. Very cool. So who are some of your early mentors and coaches that made an impact on you, not only as a player, but as a person as well? Um, I grew up in, in um, Wilcox, Saskatchewan, which is, which is a famous kind of hockey factory that, that had players like um, Rod Brendamore and um, Curtis Joseph and Vincent LeCavier and Brad Richards and all the famous guys and coaches like John Cooper and Barry Trotz and, and so as a kid, I got to grow up watching all these uh, play Wendell Clark, all these players that, that would go on to have uh, very successful NHL careers. And um, the reason that I was there, my, my, my dad, Dennis, uh, coached and, um, and taught at the school. So he was a big influence in me um, playing hockey and playing, ho uh, playing hockey the right way and being a, being a good person and a good teammate. So he definitely uh, um, instilled a lot of that in me. Um, like I mentioned before, Tom Rennie was, was big for me with team Canada. Um, my college coach, Dean blaze from North Dakota, um, big, big on work ethic. Um, so he kind of taught me how to, how to, you know, put in all the time and, and effort along the way. And then Ron Lowe, I mentioned, he was, he was one of my best coaches, uh, that I had with the Rangers, just, uh, being clear and concise and what, what he expected from you, what he wanted from you. And then as long as you did it, you were going to play. So that those were, those were some of my biggest uh, uh, influences for sure. Since you mentioned Ron Lowe, um, interesting question here, uh, hopefully is since he was a head coach, but a goalie, did, did he focus more on goalie stuff? Did he get more pissed off at goalies or was he just a regular coach? And the reason why I ask is, We've had on some um, AHL uh, goalies on here, and they basically said the coaches never spoke to them at all. It was just let them do their thing. So, what was uh, you know a goalie who was a coach like? I wouldn't even have known it. I, I mean, he he was just good. I I didn't uh, I didn't really find uh, that he acted like a lot of the goalies that I played uh, with, uh, and no, in they get a kind of a, a rap for being different guys and, and whatever. <laughs> Yeah, Ronnie was just, he was honest um, and he would just uh, expect it hard work. He didn't seem like, yeah, like I mentioned, a lot of the goalies that I've played with that are really quirky and, and just different. He, uh, he wasn't for me and he was, he, was a, he was a good coach, good bench coach, but also a really good motivator. And, and you could really trust him in what he said. If he, if he said, hey guys, you win these two games, you know, you got a day off uh, or two days off or whatever it would be. He was true to his word. Uh, you'd work hard, you'd do what was expected, and then he would always come through with, with what he promised. So I like that about him. So I enjoy reading the articles from the blog that you used to publish. And uh, it, for people that don't know, I mean, it's just great tips and advice for players at all levels and for fans who, you know, want to get into a little bit more about, you know, the game of hockey. Um, your article on coaching, I, I really found intriguing. So today's coach needs to wear many hats. It all, it, it isn't just about a system or motivating players that you talk about. It's about actively managing a team of personalities and ability uh, and levels of abilities. And you need to alter your coaching style on any given day based on, you know, what's going on with the team. What are the qualities and skills does a coach need at any pro level? Well, I, I think that's that that statement there is is 
has never been more true than it is now with with different personalities and having to having to not not cater to every personality but just being able to to have a relationship with everybody on the team um whereas before you'd find you know 20 25 years ago um it was you know this is the way i'm going to coach if you don't like it we probably won't talk much i'm going to talk to the guys um you know more so the leaders and I'm going to yell at the young guys, and then the leaders are going to show you how to how to play. Whereas now every every team, uh, especially in the NHL level and, and other levels, have development coaches, and they have specialized coaches. They have a forward development coach, a defenseman development, goalie development, and along the way, there's there's people there to to guide them. And even a coach is expected to have a relationship. Um, you know, not not a can't it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a very deep relationship with each player but they have to understand each player and get to know them as a person and you see you see more of that now so I think that's a definitely especially with uh, the players um, this generation of players uh, they want to know why you know what why wasn't I put on the ice in this situation where before it might have been you know you didn't have to ask we didn't you knew not to ask pardon me so right. Um, it's just a different, there's more communication. There's more open lines of communication. There's more voices, uh, more people you can go talk to, you know, you can get a second opinion from a, from an assistant coach, from a development coach, from a skills coach, from a private video skills coach. Um, and there's all these different ways that players can, can learn. And that the same goes for coaches. They have more help. They have analytics, they have assistants, they have, you know, an eye in the sky coach. They have, um, management uh, is more involved in, in coaching now too. They would, they would bounce things off different people in the organization. So there's just a lot more information and a lot more avenues of um, communication and, and open lines of communication that are open. And I think that's a good thing. So give us a, an inside look at what goes on from a coaching staff perspective during a game, because from a fan's perspective, we know there's a coach, at least an assistant coach upstairs uh, on a uh, you know radio. You've got two assistant coaches. You've got the main coach. What, what's going on? I mean, I'm sure there's they've got video guys. What's going on during a game? I, I can speak for kind of what was going on in in uh, in Arizona as I was there the past uh, two seasons, and. Um, I wasn't involved in a lot of the meetings, but I was able to be in on, on, on quite a few and, and just see kind of the inner workings of it. So I can speak as to what went on there. It was, you know, video coaches is in the dressing room uh, in the coach's office, pardon me. And then you have the three coaches on the bench. Uh, and in most, most organizations have the goalie coach uh, alongside a eye in the sky coach up in the press box that has the earpiece in. Um, and then radios down to, in most cases, the assistant coach on the bench. So that's a lot of eyes uh, on the game. Some teams have their, their goalie coaches also just, they don't have the eye in the sky. And a lot of times the goalie coach is the eye in the sky and does both. Um, and then the video, the video coach would also have the, uh, earpiece in his ear and he, he'd, um, as, as the play goes past the blue line, he may say, Hey, that's offside. Or I think we think we've got an offside call here or something. And, and then the assistant coach knows, uh, right away, or it'd be, um, after a goal they're they're immediately talking to the video coach, um, seeing what he sees. And then I and the sky coach can chime in with any, anything that he wants to in that way. So there's, there's a lot of eyes on it, it while I was, uh, with the coyotes. And then I, I had just special uh, assignments from the coaching staff that I would do during the games also up in the press box. So does it, uh, let me ask this question. Do, do you run the risk of overcoaching or getting conflicting on the spot during the game uh, critique? If you're a young player. Um, it, as a player. Um, yeah, I think, it, I think it's important that the coaching staff know that, uh, the, there's the main voice and the voices of the coaches. And that's the most important, whether the, whether the coaches, um, use the advice or info from the other, the other coaches, whether that's the skills coach or the goalie coach or the eye in the sky, that's kind of up to them, uh, to decide. But I think it, uh, there, there has to be the clear channel, uh, to the player and it can't be too many voices to the player, uh, at the national hockey league level for sure. Great. So you're an Ironman without a doubt. And hopefully uh, dad, I, my dad did the intro, right? I did do the intro, right? You went 850 consecutive games without an injury. So 
and when we hear that now with uh, uh, Keith Yandel and everything and, um, and, and his Ironman streak. So what does it take for a physical athlete, especially in hockey, professional hockey, to stay healthy and to, I mean, how do you, especially mentally, I mean, to never take a day off? I think it's a lot of luck um, being able to stay out of the way of, of some big shots, I guess. But um, I, I was just fortunate uh, to not have any serious ones. I played with a sprained knee and played with, uh, you know, a, a slight separations in the shoulder and couldn't see clearly out of one eye or something with stitches or in the mouth and stuff like that. But it was for me, I just never wanted to miss a game. It, even, even practice, I just liked being around so much and liked being on the ice and liked being with my teammates. And I just couldn't, if, if there was ever, if there was a possible way that I could, uh, could get on the ice, I was, I was going to play. So I, I remember playing in, um, and my worst one was probably a sprained knee. It was a second degree sprained knee that I couldn't walk. Um, but at the time I was on a tryout contract uh, and playing on Alexander Barkov's wing in his draft year. So, and Vili Niemann. so I was really excited to, to uh, continue playing um, on that line. And it was, it was just a really good chance for me. Uh, I knew it as a, you know, in my late thirties and playing with a guy like Barkov, who's an NHL star now. Uh, and at the time he was our leading scorer. He was so good. So if there was ever a way that, or, or any way that I could, uh, uh, hide that injury from the coaches um, and get on the ice. I was going to do it and I did it and ended up playing well. It was it just, I, I couldn't walk, but I would take off the walking cast and get all taped up. And then I could, for some reason I could skate so I could do a few uh, laps and warm up, and then I wouldn't feel it as much uh, during the game. So things like that, definitely not recommended at the, at the NHL level. If you're, if you're playing on a, on a sprained knee, but um, yeah, just kind of, like I mentioned, a lot of luck um, and, and trying to stay in shape and do the right things off the ice, but uh, but more so, um, yeah, just a lot of luck. So I've got a, let me ask this question and then I've got uh, some specific questions about uh, your work with uh, the Coyotes. So keeping healthy um, and, and we're playing, you know, uh, couch coach here <laughs> as fans, um, what about as far as protecting your body? We see a lot, and we're uh, mostly a, a Boston Bruins-based podcast, if you would, so we watch a lot of Bruins hockey. We see players like McAvoy, where great player, but he puts himself in very bad positions, um, and he ends up getting hurt quite a bit. And, and then you take a Brad Marchand, who's even smaller than he is, and he's so smart that he's he, it almost seems like he's intuitive to know not to turn his body a certain way, not to turn his, whatever that it is. I mean, you certainly have got that mastered. Um, and we didn't really talk about that, uh, about being smart playing to not make yourself vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And Marshawn is a good example of that him being whatever he is five, nine. But when I show videos to players about how to protect the puck, it's not necessarily that the Tom Wilson's, um, of the NHL. It's the Brad Marchands and how they use their body, how they, how they use their, he, he's able um, more than anybody to use his skates to protect the puck. It's amazing how he uh, he'll bring it kind of in between his skates and use that low, low uh, base. He's so low to the ice that he's able to protect the puck and he does it on the fly. Uh, he also doesn't get himself put up against the boards much unless he has to, unless there's a, a puck battle with the skates along the boards, but he'll do a good job of, of leaving space uh, between himself and the board so he can kind of escape out with the puck both ways. And like you mentioned, uh, that that's a big thing, just spatial awareness uh, for Marshawn. He's one of the best at, at knowing where he is on the ice. He's able to go full speed until he gets into those areas where he could possibly uh, come into a big collision like you see McAvoy do um, quite a bit, but um, just experience. And that comes with, uh, that comes with how many games he's played in the highest level and, um, but I'm glad you, you mentioned his name because he's a guy that I definitely save a lot of, of clips on to show uh, other players about how he protects the puck. And, and speaking of McAvoy, he still, I, I know he does uh, put himself in situations like that, but there's not many defensemen in the NHL that I would trade uh, for McAvoy. So he's, he's a, he's a special player. And, and as a Bruins fan, you're, uh, you're lucky to have those two. Oh, absolutely. Sweet. Absolutely. So your work with the, um, Arizona Coyotes, 
as a skills coach, I mean, that was a tough job. So you have endless amounts of video, stats, analytics. How do you implement all this data, all this technology with old school hockey smarts and the natural feel for the game? Yeah, that's the, I, I think it's just taking the information that's there and then seeing it for yourself and now seeing, seeing what you need to, uh, to apply in, in your own way. So I think it, it's important to, to read the analytics and especially with the, with the coyotes, as you know, we were a big, um, analytics, uh, organization. So, and, and most of that is valuable information, uh, in a way, if you can, if you can see and understand what, what you're reading about, um, numbers wise. So, uh, in some cases it was, um, you know, as my job, alongside the uh the skills thing and the on ice uh stuff it was also off ice hey these are the numbers dig into the video and and if you could tell us you know what you see and why these numbers are how they are what what can this kid uh what can this player on our team do to improve his his uh on ice performance in this particular area and then i dive into the video and and uh based on my experience come up with reasons you know this is probably what's leading to that and then i'd speak with the player and maybe go on the ice or 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 show him the video um and, and show him what 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 uh in fact was happening based on the video so it's important to kind of be a be a buffer and, and marry the two together and, and come up with the best um the best way to actually show the player so that it's valuable so when you're presenting something like, um, you know, a, a shot attempt opportunities and yeah. you're presenting that to maybe the coaching staff. Yeah. I mean, how do you do it? Is it a conversation? Is it a PowerPoint presentation? Do you have to give examples of why you found what you found? And, and I mean, what is that like? Bring us inside. Uh, usually it comes from management or the coaching staff and they ask, they say, Hey, you know, do you mind digging into this or digging into that? And in some cases, um, yeah, I would do products myself. Like I, I would, I would see a player doing something and then, you know, it might not be what I believe would be, uh, best for him to get scoring chances or get the puck out of his own end or something and, and present that to the coaching staff. But it wasn't, it was more so, um, you based on the computer systems and the video systems that the NHL uses it, whether it be Exos or, uh, or something like that, it'd be, um, kind of making up a video because in, in those, in those video programs, you're, you have access to every shift of every player and it's broken down into, you know, who was on the ice, um, what zone was it in? So that's all, it's all just less time consuming to do it that way. But, um, that's kind of how it would be. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be, uh, um, basically going rogue and, and taking over and saying, Hey, <laughs> this is what I think this guy should be doing. It was, it was kind of listening to what the coaches wanted and, and being somebody that they could rely on for that rather than making up your own, uh, own projects. So another, uh, I guess, odd example, but important example of, of part of, part of what you did, a small part would be something like a, a pre-scout of, uh, of face-off wins. So, yeah. you know, being a Bruins fan, I assume you'd watch a lot of, uh, uh, Bergeron, you know, a good face-off guy like that, but you're actually pre-scouting individual players coming up and what do you, obviously you're getting what they're doing, what they're not doing, but then you're presenting to the coaching staff, individual players. You, are you telling them the best way to uh, play against what they're doing? What, what is that like? Yeah. Yeah. So for instance, if Arizona was playing Boston, I would watch Brad Mar or sorry, not Brad Marchand, Patrice Bergeron, David Krejci, um, whoever was playing center on the, on the other two lines, whether it's Corrali or um, now they have, who do they have oh. center now with some injuries, but whatever it is. So I would watch, say, you know, Bergeron take his face-offs. I'd watch um, Krejci take his face-offs on both sides. Sometimes I'd eliminate the neutral zone face-offs and watch the offensive and defensive zones, and I'd come up with uh, five or seven um, – clips of them taking face-offs on their forehand on their backhand side, whether they like to go on their backhand for both sides. Uh, in Krejci's case, he's a big guy with his, his foot. So he would jam his foot in there on his backhand face-off. So he likes to jam that right foot in. I know that going in. Um, so I would, I would come up with some clips uh, showing him that. And then each player, each player would kind of 
I would send it or text it to the to the each center and kind of give a quick description and in a video, a three three and a half minute video, so that it doesn't uh, take too much out of their pregame routine. Uh, some guys like to know any foot guys, and I'd say, yeah, they're you know, Krejci uses his foot. This guy might use his foot. Anything special? Well, some guys like to go if they're righties, they'll flip their stick around and go lefty, like uh, a couple guys from Nashville, uh, Comfer did it, Halla did it, um, guys like that. So. Um, things like that, anything special. And then other guys wouldn't even watch it. Some guys wouldn't want to see it. They just want to go in and do what they do. Brad Richardson, for instance, just a, a veteran guy that knows what he needs to do to win faceoffs. He competes on the, the same way on every draw. He didn't really need to see it, but other guys, uh, would come up to me in the morning and say, Hey, what do you find this guy? What's this guy doing? What's that guy doing? And, uh, they find it valuable. So it's all kind of personal things and personal, uh, preferences, but I would, uh, do the work and, and have it ready for them uh, for pregame. And you're also doing a lot of uh, on ice stuff with the, with the boys too, correct? Yeah. Yeah. The, well, not a lot. It was a little bit um, during the season pre-practices, but I, I skated the rehab players and all the, all the guys that were injured. That was my job to, to get them back up to speed and have them, have them uh, healthy by the time they, uh, they entered practices. So that was a big thing for me and, and good to, get to know a lot of the players that way and know what it takes for them to, to rehab and be ready to, to hop back in. So do the players ever request like you to put together, uh, not just the stats that you can easily find on NHL, but like really advanced analytics and videos and, and things like that um, just for things that they want to improve on individually. Yep. Yep. There's some, some players would ask for, Hey, um, you mind looking at my shifts from tonight and seeing, you know, what, what could I have done differently on, on some of these scoring chances, or it could be, Hey, do you mind uh, looking at uh, this player that that's similar to me, but he seems to get more scoring chances. Why is he getting all these scoring chances and shots from this, this position where I'm not, you know, what can I do to, to be more efficient in, in this type of, uh, of the game. And I did a lot of that. And especially with a couple of the, the players that really trusted uh, my opinion. So that was, that was good for me to, to do that and be involved in that way. So, um, yeah, some players, like I said, everybody's different. Some players like constant attention, constant feedback, and as much video as you can bring at them and other players, I, you know, say hi to them and, and that's it. So. So making the transition from you being a player going into a coach, do you have to change a lot of your mindset up going, I mean, or is it kind of a, a same mindset in, in a way? Hopefully same mindset. Yeah. It's, it's the same mindset, but it's, I, I found it valuable because I could really relate to a lot of the players and because I had been in different situations and different countries and um, different circumstances. And, and I think because having played so long um, I got to see uh, and play different positions and be different uh, in different roles on different teams. So when I first came up, it's, you know, work hard just to stay in the lineup and then you get to, get to the NHL and you get to see that and then you get to Europe. And I, I kind of went from being a, an energy guy to a, a top scorer. And then at the end of your career, you kind of learn, okay, I, now I got to be a, a lot more reliable and I'm going to be on the right side of the puck. And then I switched back over to center. And then I was kind of like a defensive, not defensive. I was still a, a scorer, but more responsible center. And I think that experience in itself um, was really valuable to me to, to see what it took and how you don't have to sacrifice a whole lot of your offense in order to be responsible defensively. Like you guys see uh, every night with Bergeron in the way he plays. We ask guests that have, uh, you know, made it to the NHL this question, but I think you're going to bring a fresh perspective because like I said, you, you've been working on a coaching staff at the NHL. So here's the question. What, does it take today for a young player to make it to the NHL and what sacrifices do they have to make? Well, I, I first thing saying I was really fortunate even to play the handful, you know, 20, whatever games it was for me in the NHL and very few actually get to do it, but um, it, it takes a lot of luck. It takes the right attitude. And it, it, I think one of the most important things uh, to make it is being a good teammate along the way. I think a lot of coaches, uh, and people in hockey recognize uh, character and they see it in a player. If you're a good teammate, um, you're going to get a lot more uh, opportunities and a lot more breaks and a lot more things are going to come your way uh, as a player. Obviously, a lot of people say hard work and I would agree with that. Um, 
hard work and being dedicated, but also I found it valuable to, to also not only be, you know, strictly a hockey player. I like to play different sports when I was growing up and have different circles of friends and um, hockey for me, hockey wasn't everything, which was, which was a big thing for me because, you know, I, I get away from hockey. I'd go play baseball. I'd see other friends. And then when I got back to playing hockey, I was, I was excited again. And I think that gets lost in some of these, uh, these summer camps and summer teams and traveling teams where it's just constant hockey. And that's a, that's a lot to wear on a kid mentally. Um, and just in my experience, I know that's still valuable. Uh, it can be, but from my experience, uh, one of the biggest things for me was just the, uh, the, the being fortunate to play other sports and have other circles of friends and then be, uh, be excited to get back into hockey. And I think that's what probably led to me playing um, so long as a pro. Yeah. And that was going to be one of my questions, Jeff, uh, talking about, you know, especially back when you were in high school, I know a lot of uh, players, especially, I mean, it could be in any professional sport. A lot of them have to sacrifice hanging out with friends, playing other sports, but it definitely sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you, you played other sports and had plenty of friends. So it sounds like, I mean, you did live a pretty normal teenage life. Is that pretty average for a lot of pro NHL players? Or do you know a lot of them that actually had to, I mean, they had to just do nothing but work the whole time? I think, I think from where I grew up, I grew up in a really small town in, in Saskatchewan, um, a couple hundred people. And so I played for our, our town. I played for the next town and the next town because they didn't have enough kids to play. And so it was, and then I not only did I do that in hockey, I did that in baseball, uh, in football. And then growing up, I didn't want to quit those sports. So even in high school, I played baseball and, and football and won provincial championships and Western Canadians and went to nationals for, for baseball. And I still uh, am good friends with, with some of those people from or guys that I played with in those different sports. So for me, it was common um, just because small town in Saskatchewan and in Western Canada, there's not a not the cities with the, the huge populations other than Calgary and Edmonton and Vancouver and, and whatever. But uh, you see it nowadays, of course, uh, it, it's so expensive to play hockey and equipment's way more expensive and the traveling teams and, and parents have a, have a feeling that if they don't have uh, their son or daughter on the, on the, the top traveling teams or they don't make the AAA or the, you know, they're left behind, which, which just isn't the case anymore with the, with the reach and the, and the range of the scouting and the, um, and the NHL and, and college NCAA and junior leagues, they're, they're going to find you. So I think, and in saying what I said last time, how it enabled me to play so long, I think part of that also was just not having to, to use the groins and the hip flexors and the shoulders and everything that was, you know, 12 months a year, these kids are having to use and you're seeing more injuries. Uh, you're seeing, you know, they, they don't get those, those months off to play a different sport. They're always constantly on those same muscles and using those same, um, hockey, hockey muscles. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's something that's more popular now with all these summer things, but I, I just kind of wish that uh, everybody would just take a break once in a while and, and come back fresh. Yeah, that's a good point. So you've been flexible, not only in your playing career, I mean, playing wherever you, you know, it leads you, but also, you know, with, with coaching and skill development. So how important is it to be flexible in any career field? Yeah, I think, I think uh, it, it's for me speaking from experience, it's, it's kind of having your work done and knowing what you need to do, but then also, you know, ready to change and, and, and flip at the drop of a head. It could be that the GM says, Hey, drop what you're doing now. And we, you know, let's put this as a priority. We need uh, this guy's not scoring. This guy needs to needs help in this, in this certain area. And then you have to be kind of ready and, and adaptive in, in that. So, um, and you see it in every, every, um, occupation um definitely the uh the willingness to be flexible uh, is also a big uh, a big trait for for potential employers and uh, i think range definitely helps and that's something that i've been fortunate to to be in all the different places and, and basically play in every level at uh in all the different countries i think that's a that's a big thing uh, for me and being flexible not only to move everywhere and play in different cities and countries but also uh, in different roles, like you mentioned. So what's your next goal in hockey? Is it more coaching, more scouting, upper management? I mean, where are we? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm just kind of taking it, uh, uh, being a dad right now for the, these months, but definitely putting a lot of time in on the hockey side. I'm, my wife 
wife uh, thinks I'm more busy now than I was uh, even with the Coyotes <laughs> at home. But I'm I'm in the office a lot, watching uh, watching hockey, figuring out ways uh, uh, that I can add to my resume and putting it all together. And um, I think a goal for me is uh, I really uh, well, I like the day to day of hockey, um, obviously, and, and being in the fight each day and having it coming into the rink and and seeing the seeing the guys and seeing um, the team and being on the ice. So I think coaching might be uh, an immediate um, goal for me for next season, whether that's uh, an eye in the sky in the NHL or if it's an assistant coach in the American League or, or even a head or assistant over in, in Europe. I'm not too sure yet. I've had some talks uh, with all three of those and um, that seems most likely. But that being said, I also enjoy scouting and uh, watching hockey and watching players and ranking players and stuff like that. And so um, but uh, for now, I've been uh, helping out some players uh, in an organization with some uh, personal uh, video um, coaching, which which has been fun with uh, highlight sports uh, in, in Canada, which has been a lot of fun and getting to help some NHL guys out with uh, with, with my opinions and, and some uh, experience that way. So that's been a that's been a good, uh, good thing for me. But um, yeah, I think it'll be. Uh, something I'll look to get back into here for next season, possibly uh, in the NHL or, or American League. Jeff, we want to finish um, our time here with a lightning round question. So we're going to ask quick questions. Uh, your answers don't have to be quick, but whatever pops up into your head. And, um, you know, you're a special guest because you played in a lot of places and a lot of leagues. So anything's opened up. It doesn't have to be a, a North American answer. So uh, here we go. Your favorite player to play with? Peter Forsberg. Oh, nice. He was. Uh, he was. Go ahead. Uh, favorite player no, to play against? Mario Lemieux was a big thrill for me. Awesome. Your favorite arena to play at? Good one. Um, MSG has to be. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and I've, I've been there a few times, but not for a hockey game, basketball, uh, the place is huge. What was that like to, you know, I'm sure you might've had practice there, but I'm sure it was a sellout crowd or near capacity. What was that like when you first step on the ice? You just like, oh, come on, I made it. This is. Yeah. I, I didn't even have time to think it was hot. I just remember being so warm and, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of fans, and, and just you're excited. And I just remember sweating just buckets my first game against the, the Canadians. So that was, a, it was cool. You hop in the elevator, you go, I think it was the fifth or sixth floor you head up to for the ice level. So it's just that big. And it's just like a, it's uh it's like the Mecca of hockey. It's really cool there. I liked it a lot. Wow. Strangest, strangest country that you played in. Strangest country. Um, had to be Russia when I played in Siberia, uh, Nova Kuznetsk in the, um, in the KHL. And, uh, I, I mean, you guys aren't on the air long enough for me to tell you the stories from there, but I was for, I, and that being said, I love the experience, but, uh, th there wasn't a, a whole lot of, uh, reason for me to, to stick it out there as long as I did. So. Yeah. <laughs> Toughest goalie you ever played against. Toughest goalie I played against with was definitely Ray Emery. Awesome guy. Um, uh, he, he was an absolute uh, a warrior and, and, a, and a great guy that I played with. Against in for stopping the puck, um, I hated playing against right-handed goalies, the ones that catch with their right hand. For some reason, I always had it in my head, you know, when I get to this spot on the ice, I'm going to shoot here to score. And it was usually a good chance, but then against these right-handed right catch goalies, it was always the opposite. And I'd always forget and shoot, you know, before I thought of it. So uh, any, I'm just going to say any right-handed goalie, whether it was uh, Jose Theodore or Aubin or just any of those right-hand catch guys, hated it. Interesting. So best coach that you've played under, your favorite? Of all of them? Yes. I, I know I've said Ron Lowe and I probably keep saying that because he's the guy that gave me my NHL chance, but he was just so clear and concise and he knew exactly your role and he was honest and uh, liked hard work. And I think uh, when I do end up coaching, I think I'm just going to try to uh, take a little bit of each of the, the best ones. And I'm definitely, he's the one that I would 
end up taking the most from, I believe. So, Who, yeah. uh, what player got under your skin the most? Oh, I hated Sean Avery playing against him. He was always his, anybody, uh, Gavin Morgan, just the guys that were like my size, uh, you know, 5'10", 190 pound-ish or whatever, 200 pounds, like just the guys that would be about your size. So they're tough. So if you get in a fight with them, they're probably going to beat you. Um, but they were, uh, were agitators too. So I, I wasn't a big uh, Avery fan playing against him in the American League and uh, guys like Gavin Morgan, big penalty minute guy, good guys, but uh, just tough to play against, chippy. So we had a, 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 at least two other players that have been on, and they've said Sean Avery too. Yeah. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it the chirpy mouth or is it the cheap shots? Or what, what is it about Sean Avery that gets under people's skin? Um, a little bit of both, but I, I think he could back it up too. He was, he was tough. He was strong. And I only had a couple little wrestling matches with him, but, but uh, that being said, I think if, if I could have learned to play a little bit more so like Sean Avery, I would have played a lot more games in the NHL for sure. So it's a willingness to do it and then a willingness to back it up and credit to him. He did it well for a number of years. And I think also guys like, I remember playing against guys like Jim Vandermeer that would just come across with a tomahawk slash if you're in front of the net or where you, you could used to be able to get away with that stuff. So it was the, the, the big D's that cleared the crease. So you'd never wanted to go near the crease or the chippy uh, guys that were right around my size that would be in your ear the whole game and, and that like Avery. Funniest or crazy thing that happened to you during a game? Oh, man. Oh, I got to just this one was so random, but they, they just put the um, the netting up behind the behind the glasses in each end. What was it? Ten years ago or so. And they had some of the tightest netting in uh, Zenoimo, which is in Czech Republic in the Austrian League. And so I'm playing for whatever team it was. I think it was. Uh, could have been Innsbruck in Austria and I'm kind of going back into our, our own end and uh, I'm skating pretty fast and a guy skates by me so fast uh, that knocks my stick out of my hands and it goes tomahawking up over our net and into the netting behind the net and it came in there so fast that it zipped back at me and I caught it on the way back and then skated back and I, I asked the league I said hey did you guys by chance have that that footage because that was unbelievable I could I could never try that again no matter how hard I tried and they couldn't find it but that could have easily uh came off that netting so fast like it's a it's a aluminum or whatever a, a one piece stick it would have really hurt somebody first of all and for it to come just directly right back into my hands like I didn't even you know I never lost in the first place it was pretty incredible Wow, that's great. Uh, the toughest question, uh, but and I'm sure you have many, but your greatest hockey memory. Um, I had a, I had the good the fortune of uh, playing in college with my brother. Um, we won a national championship with North Dakota. That was really special, being able to pass him the trophy and, and play uh, alongside him. And then I got to play with against him for a number of years uh, over in Europe also um, in Finland and in, and in Germany and, and in the American league also. So that was pretty special. Obviously first NHL game and first NHL goal on, on Hashik was really cool to, to get that. Um, but uh, also just the championships. Um, a couple I was fortunate uh, to win were great. And then I would, to top all that off, I would probably say, I think it was my second last season, just looking up into the stands and seeing uh, my daughter being able to watch me. So that was, that was really cool to, to wave to her. Uh, when finally, you know, we have kids, I think I was 40 at the time. So one of my last few seasons and then uh, after the game, look up and wave. So that was really cool. Well, I mean, you look like you could still be playing and, and uh, I invite fans to uh, check out what you look like. I've, I watched a couple of uh, interviews in the last couple of years and, you know, you look like a Marine Corps officer ready to, uh, to do battle. I mean, man, you're just being Iron Man right here. But, uh, Jeff, we want to thank you very much. Uh, we know that we're out of, out, of, out of time, and we want to thank you for being so gracious. And, um, you know, we'd love to have you back on. I'm sure you got plenty of stories, but you're a wealth of knowledge just in the game. And like I said, I invite everybody to check out um, – your blog that you used to have and it's still up 
And uh, boy, there's just so many smart things about the game for all players and, and young coaches to, uh, to look at. But we'd love to have you on again just to talk hockey. <laughs> sure. Here anytime. That's uh, it's great what you guys do. I listened to a few of them and I was really impressed. And uh, I appreciate the, the passion that you guys have for this. And and uh, once again, thank you for having me. It was uh, it uh, went really well. And, uh, and I appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, we're going to pause the recording and just say goodbye real quick. So I'm just going to. Jeff Omo. Yeah. And I was late. Sorry. Uh, there was a car accident in the parent line, which. Nobody knows my school, of course, but uh, I teach at a very ghetto, you know, school and everything. There's not a lot there, but that's the only way I can leave is through the parent line. And uh, somebody was starting to, I watched the whole thing in bold, unfortunately. And, so there was, uh, a, there was a car accident. Yeah, and it was a fender. I mean, it was just a lady ran to the back of him, but the lady that got out was really, really, really upset. And um, yeah, it turned into something a little bit more than I thought. And I eventually went over to the um, resource officer and I was like is there any way we can kind of clear the way I gotta go and so he kind of directed them. I mean it was a mess I hauled up here so I appreciate him well it was embarrassing trying to you know I'm trying to uh, <laughs> Jeff was good enough to come on about 10 minutes before we went on and and we went over everything and I'm not stalling because I don't want to waste his time and we had a good chat but I'm just like yeah, right, that was my son. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, here we go. It's Amateurville. You know, my son's not here yet. He's a school teacher. He usually comes in about 10 minutes, you know, bombing in. Anyway, so I had to do the introduction without you. Yeah, it's a I, bit. I felt odd. It feels weird, doesn't it? It, it felt very weird. Yeah, it's a, it's a mouthful, you know. We try and give these guys a proper introduction. And there's a bunch of them that we'd have on the show, too, especially for our younger listeners that may not know who these guys are. Look, this guy is well-known in the hockey circle. And we went over his background, but if you've not checked out some videos of him, this guy is just like iron. And there's, you know, there's, uh, there's no question why he's in demand as, you know, special skills coach. And, and he just recently retired. It wasn't that long ago that he stopped playing, but teaching these young guys, like we talked about staying healthy, keeping the body, you know, uh, to where it should be and protecting yourself on the ice. Um, you know, I mean, he's just a, a real smart, you know, hockey guy that can use technology of today. And like you said, with his old school hockey skills and the feel for the game. So uh, definitely going to have Jeff back on just to talk hockey because uh, that's how we're going to learn. I mean, we're couch coaches, like I said before, and, you know, we do our homework, we know hockey, but we don't know hockey like that right absolutely and uh hopefully our listeners will uh, find these finer points yeah uh, interesting as well and if not that's why there's a little fast forward button i guess yep and uh so glad that we could string this together and uh this is two days in a row of having guests so we appreciate terry virtue for coming on will be yesterday absolutely great this episode with jeff will be published a little later because we recorded so close um but we do appreciate terry virtue and then of course uh, Jeff Orman that just came on for coming on the show. So, Dad, do you have any uh, – oh, Bruins looked okay against Buffalo yesterday. It was a little scary. Yeah, yeah. I thought Anders Bjork was going to score the game-winning goal, but he pulled what Bjork usually pulls, and, oh, misses the net. It, that's that's true. Uh, next guest, Andrew, is going to be – do you even know? I know. Who is the next guest? Gary Steffes. Gary Steffes. So yep. it'll, be, it'll be late next week, and uh, we had a uh, – uh, a little bit of a scheduling time zone confusion a few weeks ago. He was supposed to be uh, episode 20, I believe. Yep. Um, great guy. We've been chat. Uh, I've been chatting with him and look forward to uh, uh, learning all about him and his faith in sports. And it's going to be a great interview late next week. So we're probably going to have this podcast a little bit later and uh, it is going to be great. But Jeff Omer, man, what a great guy. You know, we, we say great guys with everybody, right. but that's why we're doing this podcast. Right. And until we meet a real asshole, right. I mean, and trust me, if we meet a real asshole and it doesn't go well, we're not posting the interview. <laughs> no. And most likely if he's an asshole like that, I don't think he'd even, I don't think they would even come on the show. So. No. And like I said, this is why we love the game. We keep this in mind um, of you know, just these players. It's such a small community. I'm finding out. Everybody knows each other, played with each other played under as a coach, you know, whatever. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's just great. And Fascinating. So, 
it's always funny to, you know, especially, you know, I know Jeff Ulmer wasn't um, an enforcer or anything as, as you call him, but uh, you know, guys like um, Darren Bank, Shane Corson, I mean, you know, any, any of the hockey, I mean, they're nice guys, even though they're mean as hell on the ice, they may be tough throwing punches, but well, they're all, you wonderful know, talk, guys. talking to Terry last night, virtue, right. and, and, you know, he, we're watching him. So as we're doing the podcast, uh, you know, we're on a zoom right now because of the COVID and everything we're on zoom video. And of course, you know, we don't publish the video. We just pull the audio. Um, and, you know, Terry's, you know, I could tell him, he's like, Oh man, I could be as mean as a snake out there in the ice. And I'm looking at him going, yeah, I bet you could. Yeah. But you're a super nice guy, but somehow these hockey players, um, I think it was Shane Corson said, you know, it's just that switch goes on and that's it. Yep. The Gotta switch goes job. on and well, even you just get your temper going. That's it. Yep. The switch goes on and you suddenly real, real mean. So I'm sure all these guys have that switch. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is why we enjoy interviewing them because, um, you know, whether you play high school hockey or beer league hockey, this is the elite of the elite to play in any pro league. And, you know, I mean, you and I wouldn't last, even if we were good skaters, we would last <laughs> no. 10 seconds out there in the ice. Yeah, no, not at all. So props to all of our guests and future guests. Yeah. And uh, we're just in awe and great people. So, yeah, call it, a, call it a time here. Yeah, so thank you for tuning in to the Lindroth Hockey Podcast, which I don't know if my father mentioned in the beginning, which it is not his fault. But this is podcast that is in partnership with the Black and Gold Sports Media Company through their podcast network. So shout out to Mark for having us on there and giving us a platform to be able to um, speak with these former and maybe even current NHLers in the future. So yeah. episode 22. Yeah. Absolutely. And I did mention that at the beginning. Really? I did. You know, I when did. I listen to this later, you guys, you guys tell me no, it, you should it, be doing the intros from now oh, on. Hey, my dad killed the, the me, intro. Right? No, the intro is all yours. Oh, but right. I did mention it. But yeah, big thank you to Mark. Uh, and we will call it a day. Thank you very much. Give us a uh, five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Yes. And follow us on Twitter, Hockey yeah. Lindroth. Yeah, follow us on Twitter because we also post uh, good uh, articles we find. Andrew's also a writer for Black and Gold, yep. and we've been posting his articles, and we find, you know, we create just some posts, especially post about, history stuff at, cool. about Boston Bruins alumni stuff we, we, we post and mm-hmm. history, so check us out. What is it? Lindroth Hockey? Hockey, Hockey Lindroth. Hockey Lindroth on Twitter. Yep. Hockey Are you ever going to make a uh, Instagram, Instagram for us? Eventually, yes. I, I know you're busy right now. I know yeah. You're busy. Yeah, once school ends May 19th, I'm I, good. I would we're, do it. We're gonna get I'd do soon. it, but I'm 52, and uh, that's I, all right. I don't care. That's you, all right. You, you, wouldn't want, you wouldn't want me to make one. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Well, thank you, everybody. Once again, you all have a wonderful night. Take care.